Book Seven, Part Two of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso, translated by Brooks Moore. Book Seven, Part Two. But so her malice might be satisfied. Medea feigned she had a quarrel with her husband, and for safety she had fled to Peleus. There, since the king himself was heavy with old age, his daughters gave her generous reception. And these girls the shrewd Medea in a short time won, by her false show of friendliness. And while among the most remarkable of her achievements she was telling how she had rejuvenated Aeson, and she dwelt particularly on that strange event, these daughters were induced to hope that by some skill like this their father might regain his lost youth also and they begged of her this boon, persuading her to name the price, no matter if it was large. She did not reply at once, and seemed to hesitate, and so she held their fond minds in a deep suspense by her feigned meditation. When she had at length declared she would restore his youth, she said to them, "'That you may have strong confidence in this my promised boon, the oldest leader of your flock of sheep shall be changed to a lamb again by my prized drugs.' Straightway a woolly ram, worn out with length of untold years, was brought, his great horns curved around his hollow temples. After she had cut his scrawny throat with her sharp knife Thessalian, barely staining it with his thin blood, Medea plunged his carcass in a bronze-made kettle, throwing in it at the same time juices of great potency. These made his body shrink, and burnt away his two horns, and with horns his years. And now thin bleating was heard from within the pot and even while they wondered at the sound, a lamb jumped out and frisking ran away to find some udder with its kneaded milk. Amazed, the daughters looked on, and now that these promises had been performed, they urged more eagerly their first request. Three times Phoebus unyoked his steeds after their plunge in Ebro's stream, and on the fourth night stars shone brilliant on the dark foil of the sky, and then the treacherous daughter of Aetes set some clear water over a hot fire, and put in it herbs of no potency. And now a death-like sleep held the king down, his body all relaxed, and with the king his guards, a sleep which incantations with the potency of magic words had given. The sad king's daughters, as they had been bid, were in his room, and with Medea stood around his bed. "'Why do you hesitate?' Medea said. "'You laggards, come and draw your swords. Let out his old blood, that I may refill his empty veins again with young blood. In your hands your father's life and youth are resting. You, his daughters, must have love for him, and if the hopes you have are not all vain, come, do your duty by your father, drive out old age at the point of your good weapons, and let out his blood enfeebled, cure him with the stroke of iron." Spurred on by these words, as each one of them was filial, she became the leader in the most unfilial act, and that she might not be most wicked did the wicked deed. No one could bear to see her own blows, so they turned their eyes away, and every face averted so, they blindly struck him with their cruel hands. The old man, streaming with his blood, still raised himself on elbow, and half mangled tried to get up from his bed. With all those swords around him, he stretched out his pale arms, and he cried, "'What will you do, my daughters? What has armed you to the death of your loved father?' Their wrong courage left them, and their hands fell. When he would have said still more, Medea cut his throat, and plunged his mangled body into boiling water. Only because her winged dragon sailed swiftly with her up to the lofty sky, escaped Medea punishment for this unheard-of crime. Her chariot sailed above embowered Pelion, long the lofty home of Chiron, 
over Othrys, and the vale made famous where Cerambus met his fate. Cerambus, by the aid of nymphs, from there was wafted through the air on wings, when earth was covered by the overwhelming sea, and so escaped Deucalion's flood, uncrowned. She passed by Pitane upon the left, with its huge serpent image of hard stone, and also passed the grove called Ida's, where the stolen bull was changed by Bacchus' power into a hunted stag. In that same vale Paris lies buried in the sand, and over fields where Mera, warning, harked, Medea flew, over the city of Eurypolis upon the isle of Kos, whose women wore the horns of cattle, when from there had gone the herd of Hercules, and over roads beloved of Phoebus, where Telkinian tribes dwelt, whose bad eyes corrupting power shot forth. Jove, utterly despising, thrust them deep beneath his brother's waves, over the walls of old Carthia, where Alcidamus had seen with wonder a tame dove arise from his own daughter's body. And she saw the lakes of Hyri in Tumesia's vale by swans frequented. There, to satisfy his love for sickness, Phileus gave two living vultures, shell for him subdued a lion, and delivered it to him, and mastered a great bull at his command. But when the wearied Phileus refused to render to his friend the valued bull, indignant the youth said, You shall regret your hasty words which having said, he leaped from a high precipice as if to death, but gliding through the air on snow-white wings was changed into a swan. Dissolved in tears, his mother Hyri knew not he was saved, and weeping formed the lake that bears her name. And over Pleuron, where on trembling wings escaped the mother Comb from her sons, Medea flew, and over the far isle Caloria, sacred to Latona, she beheld the conscious fields whose lawful king, together with his queen, were changed to birds. Upon her right Selene could be seen, there Menaphon, degraded as a beast, outraged his mother. In the distance she beheld Cephisius, who lamented long his hapless grandson, by Apollo changed into a bloated sea-calf, and she saw the house where King Eumelus mourned the death of his aspiring son. Born on the wings of her enchanted dragons, she arrived at Corinth, whose inhabitants, tis said, from many mushrooms watered by the rain, sprang into being. There she spent some years. But after the new wife had been burnt by the Colchian witchcraft, and two seas had seen the king's own palace all aflame, then savagely she drew her sword, and bathed it in the blood of her own infant sons, by which atrocious act she was revenged, and she, a wife and mother, fled the sword of her own husband Jason. On the wings of her enchanted titan dragons born, she made escape securely, nor delayed until she entered the defended walls of great Minerva's city, at the hour when aged Periphus, transformed by Jove, together with his queen, on eagle wings flew over its encircling walls, with whom the guilty Halcyon, skimming seas safely escaped, upon her balanced wings. And after all these events, Medea went to Aegeus, king of Athens, where she found protection from her enemies for all this evil done. With added wickedness, Aegeus, after that, united her to him in marriage. All unknown to him came Theseus to his kingly court. Before the time his valour had established peace on all the isthmus, raved by dual seas. Medea, seeking his destruction, brewed the juice of aconite, investing shores of Scythia, where, tis fabled, the plant grew on soil infected by Cerberian teeth. There is a gloomy entrance to a cave, that follows a declivitous descent, there Hercules, with chains of adamant, dragged from the dreary edge of Tartarus that monster watchdog Cerberus, which vain opposing turned his eyes aslant from light, from dazzling day. Delirious, enraged, that monster shook the air with triple howls, and frothing sprinkled as it raved the fields once green with spewing of white poison foam. 
and this, converted into plants, sucked up a deadly venom with the nourishment of former soils, from which productive grew upon the rock thus formed the noxious plant, by rustics from that caused, named aconite. Medea worked on Aegeus to present his own son, Theseus, with a deadly cup of aconite, prevailing by her art so that he deemed his son an enemy. Theseus unwittingly received the cup, but just before he touched it to his lips, his father recognized the sword he wore, for graven on its ivory hilt was wrought a known device, the token of his race. Astonished, Aegeus struck the poison cup from his devoted son's confiding lips. Medea suddenly escaped from death in a dark whirlwind her witch-singing raised. Recoiling from such utter wickedness, rejoicing that his son escaped from death, the grateful father kindled altar-flames, and gave rich treasure to the living gods. He slaughtered scores of oxen, decked with flowers and gilded horns. The sun has never shone upon a day more famous in that land, for all the elders and the common folk united in festivities, with wine-inspiring wit and song. O oh, you, they sang, immortal Theseus, victory was yours. Did you not slaughter the huge bull of Crete? Yes, you did slay the boar of Chromion, where now the peasant unmolested ploughs. And Paraphetes, wielder of the club, was worsted when he struggled with your strength. And fierce Procrustes, matched with you beside the rapid river, met his death. And even Cercyon in Eleusis lost his wicked life, inferior to your might. And Sinus, a monstrosity of strength, who bent the trunks of trees, and used his might against the world for everything that's wrong. For evil he would force down to the earth, pine-tops to shoot men's bodies through the air. Even the road to Megara is safe, for you did hurl the robber Siron sheer over the cliff. Both land and sea denied his bones a resting-place, as tossed about they changed into the cliffs that bear his name. How can we tell the number of your deeds, deeds glorious, that now exceed your years? For you, brave hero, we give public thanks and prayers, to you we drain our cups of wine and all the palace rings with happy songs, and with the grateful prayers of all the people, and sorrow in that city is not known. But pleasure always is alloyed with grief, and sorrow mingles in the joyous hour. While the king Aegeus and his son rejoiced, Minos prepared for war. He was invincible in men and ships, and stronger in his rage to wreak due vengeance on the king who slew his son and Aegeus. But first he sought some friends to aid his warfare, and he scoured the sea with the swift fleet, which was his strength. Anaphi and Astapalea both agreed to join his cause, the first one moved by promises, the second by his threats. Level Mykonos and the chalky fields of Simolus agreed to aid, and Cyros covered with wild thyme, level Seraphos, Paros of marble cliffs, and that place which Arni, the impious Siphnian, had betrayed, who having got the gold which in her greed she had demanded, was changed to a bird which ever since that day imagines gold its chief delight, a black-foot, black-winged daw. But Oliaris, Didyme, Antinos, Gyaros, Andros, and Peparethos, rich in its glossy olives, gave no aid to the strong Cretan fleet. Sailing from them, Minos went to Onopia, known realm of the Aesiadi. Men of old time had called the place Enopia, but Echus styled it Aegina from his mother's name. At his approach an eager rabble rushed resolved to see and know so great a man. Telamon met him, and his brother, younger than Telamon, and Phocus, who was third in age. Even Echus appeared, slow with the weight of years, and asked him what could be a reason for his coming there. The ruler of a hundred cities sighed, as he beheld the sons of Echus, for they reminded him of his lost son, and heavy with his sorrow he replied, I come imploring you to take up arms, and aid me in the war against my foes, for I must give that comfort to the shade of my misfortuned son, whose blood they shed. 
But Aegis replied to Minos, Nay, it is a vain request you make, for we are bound in strict alliance to the land and people of Cecropia. Full of rage because he was denied, the king of Crete, Minos, as he departed from their shores, replied, Let such a treaty be your bane. And he departed with his crafty threat, believing it expedient not to waste his power in wars until the proper time. Before the ships of Crete had disappeared, before the mist and blue of waves concealed their fading outlines from the anxious throng which gathered on Anopian shores, a ship of Athens covered with wide sails appeared, and anchored safely by their friendly shore, and presently the mighty Cephalus, well known through all that nation for his deeds, addressed them as he landed, and declared the good will of his people. Him the sons of Aeacus remembered well, although they had not seen him for some untold years. They led him to their father's welcome home, and with him also his two comrades went, Clytus and Beauties. Centre of all eyes, the hero still retained his charm, the customary greetings were exchanged, the graceful hero, bearing in his hands a branch of olive from his native soil, delivered the Athenian message, which requested aid, and offered for their thought the treaty and ancestral league between their nations. And he added, Minos sought not only conquest of the Athenian state, but sovereignty of all the states of Greece. And when this eloquence had shown his cause, with left hand on his gleaming sceptre's hilt, King Aeacus exclaimed, Ask not our aid, but take it, Athens, and count boldly yours all of the force this island holds, and all things which the state of my affairs supplies. My strength for this war is not light, and I have many soldiers for myself and for my enemy. Thanks to the gods! The times are happy, giving no excuse for my refusal." "'May it prove so,' Cephalus replied, "'and may your city multiply in men. Just now, as I was landing, I rejoiced to meet youths, fair and matched in age. And yet I miss among them many whom I saw before when last I visited your city." Aeacus then groaned, and with sad voice replied, With weeping we began, but better fortune followed. Would that I could tell the last of it, and not the first, giving my heart command that simple words and briefly spoken may not long detain. Those happy youths who waited at your need, who smiled upon you and for whom you ask, because their absence grieves your noble mind, they've perished and their bleaching bones or scattered ashes only may remain, sad remnants, impotent, of vanished power, so recently my hope and my resource. Because this island bears a rival's name, a deadly pestilence was visited on my confiding people, through the rage of jealous Juno flaming for revenge. This great calamity at first appeared a natural disease, but soon its power baffled our utmost efforts. Medicines availing not, a reign of terror swept from shore to shore, and fearful havoc raged. Thick darkness gathered from descending skies enveloped our devoted land with heat and languid sickness, for the space of full four moons. Four times the moon increased her size. Hot south winds blew with pestilential breath upon us. At the same time the diseased infection reached our needed springs and pools. Thousands of serpents crawling over our deserted fields defiled our rivers with their poison. The swift power of the disease at first was limited to death of dogs and birds and cattle, or among wild beasts. The luckless ploughman marvels when he sees his strong bulls fall while at their task, and sink down in the furrow. Woolly flocks bleat feebly while their wool falls off without a cause, and while their bodies pine away. The prized horse of high courage, and of great renown when on the race-course, has now lost victorious spirit, and forgetting his remembered glory groans in his shut stall, doomed for inglorious death. The boar forgets to rage, the stag to trust his speed, and even the famished bear to fight the stronger herd. Death seizes on the vitals of all life, and in the woods and in the fields and the roads the loathsome bodies of the dead corrupt the heavy hanging air. 
Even the dogs, the vultures, and the wolves refused to touch the putrid flesh, there in the sultry sun rotting upon the earth, emitting steams and exhalations with a baneful sweep increasing the dread contagion's wide extent. So spreading with renewed destruction gained from its own poison, the fierce pestilence appeared to leap from moulding carcasses of all the brute creation, till it struck the wretched tillers of the soil, and then extended its dominion over all this mighty city. Always it began as if the patient's bowels were scorched with flames, red blotches on the body next appeared, and sharp pains in the lungs prevented breath. The swollen tongue would presently loll out, rough and discoloured from the gaping mouth, wide gasping to inhale the noxious air, and show red throbbing veins. The softest bed and richest covering gave to none relief, but rather the diseased would bear himself to cool his burning breast upon the ground, only to heat the earth, and no relief returned. And no physician could be found, for those who ministered among the sick were first to suffer from the dread disease. The cruel malady broke out among the very ones who offered remedies. The hallowed art of medicine became a deadly snare to those who knew it best. The only safety was in flight and those who were the nearest to the stricken ones, and who most faithfully observed their wants, were always first to suffer as their wards. And many, certain of approaching death, indulged their wicked passions, recklessly abandoned without the sense of shame, promiscuously huddled by the wells and rivers and cool fountains, but their thirst no water could assuage, and death alone was able to extinguish their desire. Too weak to rise, they die in water they pollute, while others drink its death. A madness seizing on them made their beds become most irksome to their tortured nerves. Demented they could not endure the pain, and leaped insanely forth. Or if too weak the wretches rolled their bodies on the ground, insistent to escape from hated homes, imagined sources of calamity. For since the cause was hidden and unknown, the horrible locality was blamed. Suspicion seizes on each frail presence as proof of what can never be resolved. And many half-dead wretches staggered out on sultry roads as long as they could stand and others weeping stretched out upon the ground, died in convulsions as their rolling eyes gazed upwards at the overhanging clouds. Under the sad stars they breathed out their souls. And, oh, the deep despair that seized on me, the sovereign of that wretched people! I was tortured with a passionate desire to die the same death, and I hated life. No matter where my shrinking eyes were turned, I saw a multitude of gruesome forms and ghastly attitudes bestrew the ground, scattered as rotten apples that have dropped from moving branches, or as acorns thick around a gnarled oak. Lift up your eyes, behold that holy temple, unto Jove long dedicated. What availed the prayers of frightened multitudes, or incense burned on those devoted altars? In the midst of his most fervent supplications, the husband, as he pled for his dear wife, or the fond father for his stricken son, would suddenly, before a word prevailed, die clutching at the altars of his gods, while holding in his stiffened hand a spray of frankincense still waiting for the fire. How often sacrificial bulls have been brought to those temples, and while white-robed priest was pouring offered wine between their horns, have fallen without waiting for the stroke. While I prepared a sacrifice to Jove for my behalf, my country and three sons, the victim, ever moaning dismal sounds before a blow was struck, fell suddenly beside the altar, and his scanty blood ran thinly from the knives that slaughtered him. His entrails, wanting all the marks of truth, were so diseased, the warnings of the gods could not be read. The baneful malady had penetrated to the heart of life. And I have seen the carcasses of men lie rotting at the sacred temple gates, or by the very altars where they fell, making death odious to the living gods. And often I have seen some desperate man end life by his own halter, and so cheat by voluntary death his fear of death, in mad haste to outrun approaching fate. The bodies of the dead indecently were cast forth, lacking sacred funeral rites as hitherto the custom. 
All the gates were crowded with processions of the dead. Unburied they might lie upon the ground, or else deserted on their lofty pyres with no one to lament their dismal end, dissolve in their dishonoured ashes. All restraint forgotten, a mad rabble fought and took possession of the burning pyres, and even the dead were ravished of their rest. And who should mourn them wanting? All the souls of sons and husbands, and of old and young, must wander unlamented, and the land sufficed not for the crowded sepulchres, and the dense forest was denuded of all trees. Heart-broken at the sight of this great woe, I wailed, O oh, Jupiter! If truth were told of your sweet comfort in Aegina's arms, if you were not ashamed of me, your son, restore my people, or entomb my corpse, that I may suffer as the ones I love. Great lightning flashed around me, and the sound of thunder proved that my complaint was heard. Accepting it, I cried, Let these, great Jove, the happy signs of your ascent be shown good omens given as a sacred pledge. Nearby a sacred oak-tree grown from seed brought thither from Dodona, spread abroad its branches thinly covered with green leaves, and creeping as an army on the tree we saw a train of ants that carried grain, half hidden in the deep and wrinkled bark. And while I wondered at the endless line, I said, Good father, give me citizens of equal number for my empty walls. Soon as I said those words, though not a wind was moving nor a breeze, the lofty tree began to tremble, and I heard a sound of motion in its branches. Wonder not that sudden fear possessed me, and my hair began to rise, and I could hardly stand for so my weak knees tottered. As I made obeisance to the soil and sacred tree, perhaps I cherished in my heart a thought, that not acknowledged, cheered me with some hope. At night I lay exhausted by such thoughts, a deep sleep seized my body, but the tree seemed always present, to my gaze distinct with all its branches. I could even see the birds among its leaves, and from its boughs that trembled in the still air moving ants were scattered to the ground in troops below, and ever as they touched the soil they grew larger and larger. As they raised themselves they stood with upright bodies, and put off their lean shapes, and absorbed their many feet, and even as their dark brown colour changed, their rounded forms took on a human shape. When my strange dream departed, I awoke, the vision vanished, I complained to heaven against the idle comfort of such dreams, but as I voiced my own lament, I heard a mighty murmur echoing through the halls of my deserted palace, and a multitude of voices in confusion, where the sound of scarce an echo had disturbed the still deserted chambers for so many days. All this I thought the fancy of my dream, until my brave son Telamon, in haste threw open the closed doorway as he called, "'Come quickly, father, and behold a sight beyond the utmost of your fondest dreams!' I did go out, and there I saw such men each in his turn as I had seen transformed in that weird vision of the moving ants. They all advanced, and hailed me as their king. So soon as I had offered vows to Jove, I subdivided the deserted farms and dwellings in the cities to these men miraculously raised, which now are called my myrmidons, the living evidence of my strange vision. You have seen these men, and since that day their name has been declared decisive evidence. They have retained the well-known customs of the days before their transformation. Patiently they toil, they store the profits of their labour, which they guard with valiant skill. They'll follow you to any war, well matched in years and courage. And I do promise, when this east wind turns, this wind that favoured you and brought you here, and when a south wind favours our design, then my brave Myrmidons will go with you. End of Book 7 Part 2